Before we get started, I want to take the opportunity to talk about our partner for this podcast, BravoPay. BravoPay is a marketplace and payment platform for musicians and content creators like streamers, sports influencers, personal trainers, and, well, podcasters. You can create a fan page on their app and set up shop offering physical and digital products as well as premium subscriptions. It's easy to share your Bravo link with others on your social media so that, for the rest of you, can support your favorite creators. Check it out at app.trybravo.com. I'll also leave a link in the description. You're listening to The 80-20 Show, an inside look into the music industry. Welcome everybody to The 80-20 Show. I am your host, Mike Zimmerlich, and my next guest is Christopher Leon Price, an avid filmmaker, music video director, podcaster, and one of my best friends. We talk about how he got into filmmaking and podcasting, as well as his experiences working on music videos that were released under 8020 Records. This episode is great for anyone looking to get into making music videos and just how to get started as a creator. I hope you enjoy this episode with Christopher Leon Price. Mr. Christopher Price, how are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing great, Mike. It's, a, it's always a pleasure to sit down and talk with one of my uh, best and closest friends. I know. And in fact, uh, for everyone who's listening right now, I have a lot to owe to you because being a veteran podcaster, which we will get to in the interview, is one of the main reasons why I started uh, the 8020 show. So I really do lean on you for your, your wisdom and expertise when it comes to podcasting. Well, you, you flatter me, uh, Mr. Zimmerlich. I, uh, you know, I, you're, as a close friend, uh, I like to, to give advice maybe more than I should sometimes. And uh, I'm glad that you have taken it and you've, I mean, you've done all the work. So uh, you have to give yourself some credit there as well. Well, I appreciate it. But we're not here to talk about me. We're here to talk about you. So I would like to start in how did you get started into filmmaking? Oh, boy. Okay. So I guess, you know, we were all products. Uh, our generation. We're all products of the of the media we consumed. We watched tons of television. We watched tons of movies. We may have been the most cinematically soaked generation of all time because from very, very young age, our parents exposed us to uh, a wide range of films and maybe stuff we shouldn't have watched, stuff that today it would be censored to most kids. Uh, and uh, it was magical. It was a really magical time to be a, a product of the 90s film wave. And uh, I was a product of that wave. I think film has always been really special to me. It's I've always felt like it's it's been like the most religious experiences for me have been seeing a movie because um, it's one of the few things I think you can do where you can be one person at the beginning of the film. And then after you've watched it and consumed it, you can be a completely different person. It can literally change lives. So it's one of the unique mediums that I think does that. Um, not that any of the other mediums don't do that. It's just uh, in a more profound and like, you know, direct way. So um, I was always, uh, you know, obsessed with them. And, you know, Jurassic Park, Star Wars, um, 
obviously like Pulp Fiction later on, like all those things I always thought were like the coolest, most amazing movies I had seen. And uh, I wanted to make them too. And so uh, I got the bug real early. Like I remember making movies uh, using my parents' camcorder, like classic, you know, Genesis story type stuff where, you know, I would, I would ask to borrow it. I would do uh, in camera editing where you have to, it's, it's only where you stopped recording and started recording is the way that you made the movie. Um, and I still actually have a lot of those videos and stuff too, which is kind of amazing. Um, so even from a young age, I, I was really obsessed with it and loved it. And, you know, as you go through high school and whatnot, you kind of really aren't sure what's possible out there. Like, you know, I grew up in Arizona, which, uh, has had a, a decent independent film scene for a while, but it's kind of hard to become privy to those things, especially pre-internet, right? And uh, so I just kind of was just getting through life and being a teenager um, when I got to college. And I basically found out in college that they were making a film program at Arizona State. That's where I went. And uh, once I found out about that and I was like, I can make a career out of this. Like I never, I always made films for fun. It was always just something I did for fun over and over again. Uh, but then once I was like, oh, I can be educated on this and I can get a degree in this. And that seems like a possibility. I just, I went for it. And uh, that's kind of where a lot of my opportunities and meeting you emerged. I think it came kind of from that college experience it has so um speaking of which jump jumping ahead into college is that uh you is where i believe you met uh dan rojas or did you meet him before college and just for context Dan daniel rojas is uh the lead singer for 42 eternal which uh if you are veterans of listening to this podcast would know that's one of the first bands that was signed to 8020 records and how i met chris so um this, was that when you met dan was in college or do you meet dan before then you know, Dan and I have a real long history. It's kind of uh, funny and amazing. Um, uh, I knew of Dan in middle school when I, my family was moving all over the place. We moved a bunch when I was a kid, just a, to a bunch of different houses and apartments and stuff when I was growing up. And uh, the latest one I moved to, it was my first time going to this middle school and uh Desert Sky Middle School. That's where I went. And Dan was a friend of another friend of mine, but I didn't really know him super well. And if anything, I kind of like resented him. I don't know. It was like stupid, like schoolyard dramas and stuff where you're like, oh, he's his friend, but he's not my friend, you know, like that kind of stupid shit. Uh, but uh, so I just knew of him. And then in high school, as the years passed and we matured, our paths kind of crossed like more and more and more, but we didn't, we weren't like really friends. And then I got into media productions and Dan was like one of the best people at the media productions class. You know how like every class there's like the few two or three kids that are like really good at whatever that class is. And we had a media productions class and we had like a morning news and like all of that with like cameras and stuff that would air on the TVs. It was actually a really cool environment to like teach kids how to do stuff. And Dan was like a camera operator and like one of the guys who uh, operated in the back and like actually did like early 
um, like Twitch kind of setup stuff where you would have to do real time edits and like all that stuff. So he was the like, uh, and, and the thing about Dan is he's like impressive in everything he does. Like true. almost everything that guy does, he just touches it and he's like, Oh yeah, I'm just going to get really good at this all of a sudden. Um, the guy, he has like a weird mutant power that allows him to do that. But, uh, anyways, when our paths crossed there, um, like, I don't know. It's kind of funny how people work. Like, even if you don't necessarily like someone at first, or you don't know enough about them and you're just ignorant, like I was, uh, if you pa- if you cross paths with them enough and you talk enough and you're both like cool people, you'll be friends. <laughs> that's what, it's that's true. It. That's how we met. Like case in point, like that's exactly how I felt about you. Because when I, uh, when 820 Records signed 42 Eternal, I would go over to uh, to Dan's house to have band meetings and it would be the rest of the band there. And you'd just be hanging out there. And I'm like, who's this guy that's just hanging out with this <laughs> while I'm trying to have a band meeting? And like, I remember just kind of chilling on the couch while I'm trying to have this, like literally signing the paperwork with the rest of the band and just hanging out there. I'm like, who the hell is this guy like invading my <laughs> business meeting? And then... Uh, and then at, right afterwards, you're like, okay, Dan, it's time for lessons. You're teaching him boxing lessons outside. I was like, okay, I guess this is the thing. And all I knew about you at the time was that you were a film director. And I thought that was kind of cool. But that was it. Like, I was like, oh, that 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 guy who just hanged out with a band that says he's a film director. And like, that was my original thought of you. And then obviously, uh, afterwards, we started building a friendship as we got to hang out more and more. Um, yeah, I, that, that, that happened in uh, college, right? So uh, you know, I met Dan in high school. We we became buddies, you know, by association. Um, not like best friends, but like friends. And uh, we were in college together. And he went to like a the ASU West and I went to ASU Maine. But a lot of our social circles overlapped. And case in point, um, in college, I was really into like uh, martial arts. So I was doing like uh, pancreation, which is like, a form of like grappling. Uh, I was doing boxing and uh, Dan, who's a black belt uh, himself in, in a martial art in a uh, Tung Soo Do, he uh, was like, oh, I'll spar with you. He was like willing to do it. So uh, that's why I was over at his place. And I believe my parents still lived close to where Dan was at the time. So it was just easy for me to hang out at his place. And as anybody who went to college will know, you'll find yourself just you know, non COVID times, you would just find yourself like hanging out at people's houses for like hours or if not days, you know, and uh, it was, it was cool in that way. And it allowed me to kind of interact with all the same people he did. And that was obviously you. And, you know, I vaguely remember what you recall, which was the, uh, we were boxing kind of thing. I, I, I kind of vaguely remember that. What really got me to, get to know who you were was through the game magic the gathering i was hoping you bring that up (laughs) yeah and magic the gathering uh you can google it everybody it's uh it's it's a it's a very intense very math driven uh strategy game with cards and at first i was like oh this game is stupid i'm never gonna learn how to play this game and uh but I played it a few times and it, it was addicting and it's a, it's really well designed. And um, I, you at the time were living in a place in an apartment near ASU the, in Tempe campus. And uh, because I was at that campus all the time, like I was a workaholic in college. I was like a crazy madman. And like, instead of me like going home 
like before a class and then coming back, I would just go to your place or wait for you to get like back from whatever you were doing. And we usually play magic. And, you know, when you play a game like magic, it forces you in like to confrontation. It forces you into conversation. And then, you know, you're waiting for them to make a move or, or make a decision. So then you have to, you know, fill the, the time with, you know, asking them questions about their life or whatever. And then that's how we got to know each other. And I, I don't know how many times I crashed at your place. Like it, it was a lot. It was like, it was a couple of days a week for like a year, but it was, it, it was so much fun too, because you know, it was always like, I always had that buddy that would come over and play, and hang out and play magic. And, you know, at the time, you know, I was working from home. So it was kind of nice to have somebody coming, you know, it was just by myself in the apartment. So it was nice to have yeah. somebody coming over and hanging out and doing things. And, you know, I remember because uh, also case in point, the person who really got both of us together was uh, Daphne Green, who yes. was a prior guest on this podcast and from Daphne and the Glitches. And so, you know, Daphne and you and myself would, would you know, play magic. And I, I remember a lot of times like I would be out and about and I'd come back and all of a sudden I'll see you and Daph just like hanging out the door, just waiting for me to come home and hang out. <laughs> yeah, it was, you know, those were special times. I think... Um, you know, as we've gotten older, I mean, we're not completely old men, but we're getting there, you know, we're in our mid thirties and, um, there is a complete shift in how you socialize and do things from your twenties, your early twenties to your thirties and your mid thirties and beyond. That's true. Um, there is a, a quantum shift and it's really hard to articulate. It's just like, uh, those times you had the time you had less responsibility, even though you didn't know it. Uh, you, you were, you had the motivation and the energy and, you know, youth and all of that to do stuff. And like, it was all available to you and it was appropriate. Like, um, as you get older, it becomes less appropriate. I don't know if that's the right word, but it becomes harder, I think, to uh, put yourself in that many of a much of a dynamic social situations. Like, I mean, gosh, we had so we I went to so many parties and hosted so many parties. I uh, had so many excuses and for events to go to music venues, film shoots, uh, just like tons of stuff, like watching someone's film at a film premiere thing, like uh, so many like little things that just were excuses to meet new people, uh, build new bonds, and not all of them worked out and were like the best but you you during that time you kind of find some of your strongest connections with people and that's where you know Daphne Green Dan Rojas and yourself like all three of you um, are very close to me and I feel very special for having the opportunity during that very very special time uh, those college years so to speak um, and beyond to uh, to to develop those relationships and to continue to work with everybody you know that's like the best part is that like we're all professionals now we've all like done some cool shit and uh, we're, we're still building and we're still doing our stuff but it, the the foundation what got us here uh, were, were those building relationships from from well over a decade ago yeah it's interesting that you mentioned that I think what happens as you as time progresses as you get older is that you the the way that you value time changes yeah and definitely. i don't think it's necessarily 
you know, for the better or worse, it's just your priorities change in life. And I feel like as you get older, um, you know, I know, for example, like I have friends like yourself and uh, friends I've known since I was, you know, three, four years old. And it's amazing on how looking back on how our relationship has changed based upon the value of the time that I perceive with that particular person. And that can be the conversations we have. It can be the games that we play, um, the, the activities just in general that we do together. And so it's, it's very, is, is interesting as you get older that those things change in your life. And I think it's important to be aware of that. And that the fact that, you know, you know, I have friends now that have, they're married and have kids now, obviously my relationship with them has changed because of that reason. Or some people have, you know, you know, professional careers that they get occupied with. So we all change in what we do. And um, it's, it is very interesting to look back and see like, okay, yeah, we probably can't get away with like hanging out every single day and playing magic. But at the same token, the times that we do spend with each other, I think end up being even more special because it becomes more of a rarity. Yes. I think that kind of goes with almost anything in life, right? Is that um, not that I don't think we took it for granted, at all. I think we, it's, it's kind of, we, it was fulfilling in every way for me, at least, um, you know, whether it was time quote unquote wasted or not, but like you said, as you get older, you begin to realize the value of time. And, um, and I think it changes all the time too. I think it ebbs and flows. I think it, we, it like, we're going to learn new shit 10 years from now and 20 years from now, 30 and 40 years from now, you know, uh, you know, God willing, we can make it that long. And it's one of those things where um, just rolling with the punches, kind of being aware of where you are and where you were as best you can. And, you know, looking ahead and trying to improve. That's what everybody's trying to do. Right. Absolutely. And and what was great, too, is the fact that, you know, you and I have developed a close bond and Daphne, um, all three of us, um, including Daphne, have really developed a close bond. And uh, we discussed this also in uh, Daphne's episode, but we talked about moving out to Los Angeles and you were the the third roommate. It was the three of us <laughs> yeah. that moved out there. In fact, it was your idea about moving out to Los Angeles. So you want to talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, uh, I'll touch on that a bit. Uh, I really recommend everybody listens to the Daphne Green interview on the 8020 show as well. Um, it's great. Um and it gives a lot of context to what I'm saying too. Um, yeah, I mean, I was one of the fools who was duped into the idea that Los Angeles is where it's at, right? Like we were, you know, product of that 90s cinema generation and um, Los Angeles is where things happen. It is still where things happen and I don't regret it whatsoever, but um, I was really convinced and I'd really uh, drink the Kool-Aid for coming out here. And um, I wanted to go, but I wanted to go in a smart and safe way. Um, I, I, I definitely wasn't prepared to like live on my own in a new city like this place. Um, and I was young and dumb still. And, uh, you know, I, I, through long conversations with you and Daphne, I kind of got the beat on like where everybody was. And, um, you know, Daphne moved out here first, um, you know, and stayed with uh, her uncle for a while. And that kind of allowed me to have like a, a rally point, you know, like Daphne's there already. Uh, let's get Mike and Chris there. 
And, you know, it was, <laughs> we made every mistake that one could make trying to move out here. And uh, we figured it out though. And I think now things are a little different for like, just in general about like entertainment and where you have to be. There's this great dissemination that we're kind of seeing. So you don't have to live in Los Angeles, but it's still an incredibly dynamic and, um, you know, fruitful city, um, despite the COVID times that we're in right now. Um, so I'm not going anywhere, but, uh, yeah, it was a really interesting, uh, and fun and scary, um, decision. And, uh, you know, I've stuck with it. Yeah. I would, I would always uh, mention that, uh, going out to Los Angeles very specifically because of you and Daphne was one of the, uh, most special moments in my life was was going out there and um all the experiences and i i love los angeles so much and uh yeah i mean it was you know just case in point it was the right timing in all of our lives to to make this venture and you know truly were you know pioneers of the people that we knew of moving out to los angeles where we didn't really know anybody else that really outside of us Mm -hmm. and uh so it, it was it great. I mean, it was it definitely helped build eighty twenty records. If it wasn't for that, um, there were certain music conferences that I wouldn't have been even aware of that led me to some amazing opportunities and why eighty twenty records, as far as it has gone so far, was because of moving out to Los Angeles. Is the people um, out there, and it really gave me this realization that. And this happens time and time again. Is that when you put yourself in that environment, you realize that what people have accomplished that you want to accomplish is no longer unobtainable for yourself. Right. And yeah, I think that was possible. the most important lesson that I've at least learned living in, because I was only in Los Angeles for about a year. So, um, but f- what I've experienced during that year is the fact that the things that I wanted out of life, honestly, it is, is obtainable for myself. I'm no different than really anybody else. It just really comes down to that, that determination and drive and talent that, that helped and, and, and luck too, a big part of his luck as well and getting to where you want to go. And so if you're putting yourself into that position, you have a real good shot of making something happen to yourself that you want to do. Yeah. I think, uh, there's a few things about that is you're right. When you move to Los Angeles, you, you start to see that, uh, you know, Hollywood stars and entertainers and, uh, this whole industry is no, less sloppy than you are you know they are uh it's it's messy and gross and uh, they're stupid and there's it's like any other place in the world where uh people are people right and so it definitely takes down the veil that like this is some kind of impossible impregnable uh place or you know industry any industry you know any of the entertainment industries um music and film uh, it's like, it is definitely possible. However, what's really important is, is identifying your goals and being honest with yourself, what you really want to do. Cause I think something that happens a lot, um, is, uh, people will be like, I want to be a musician or I want to be a film director. And, it's like, well, what is that? Do you even know what that entails? Like, what does that mean? And it is, it's like, what is the daily life of a musician? What is the daily life of a film director? Um, Cause you're not always at a concert and playing in front of people and you're not always directing a movie. So 
figuring out what that is. And the, the, the interesting thing is, is that you can make it whatever you want it to be. And that's kind of the weird shock is that there isn't like a pathway. There's not like a pre-made path for you to walk on. And if you just do all these things right, then you're going to get to where you quote unquote want. Um, if you know what you want ahead of time and you really know what that looks like, um, the amount of effort that it takes or the kind of work it is, uh, both the good and the bad parts of that work then you have something to aim for. And then you can, that can be very satisfying and, and, and whatnot. I, I think having a very broad goal, such as uh, I want to make movies, I don't think that's uh, going to do you any favors. I think that's just going to um, hinder you. You're going to uh, be disillusioned. You're not really going to know what it's actually like because I, I know I don't need to tell you this, but it's really damn hard to do this stuff. It's super hard. It's harder than you think it is. I was laughing with my buddy Derek the other day, and he was talking to me about some post-production workflow thing for a film he's helping, he's working on. Um, and I was like, we were like talking like almost like it was another language, you know, using technical jargon here and there. And it's like, does the average person even know what all this is? Like, absolutely not. There's no way. And, but you have to have an understanding of a lot of these things if you even want to do anything in this business. And it's, it's really hard. And, you know, I'm a novice still at it. I think, I think I still have years of experience necessary to get a handle on certain things um, that are beyond me still. Uh, and I think, thinking that maybe you have a handle on it or you know what exactly what you're doing or maybe being too confident is also uh, not the best idea either. It's like, come in humble, know what you want and be in for the long haul. And that's, that's really the, like the three cornerstones of like making it, whatever that might mean. I totally agree. I'm, I'm still learning every single day. I've been doing this now for uh, a 20 records. Um, you know, I've been doing that now for over 13 years now, and I'm still, you know, still learning to this day uh, on things that, you know, sometimes I'm like, should I, you know, it feels like sometimes I should already know how this works, but there's just so much to it that there's no way for you to know everything that, that goes on and what everything is, you know, the jargon or all those different types of things, because there's so much that's out there. So mm -hmm. you have to be humble, even if you have years of experience and knowing that you don't know everything and that's okay. It's okay to not yeah. know certain things. What's not okay is not asking the right questions or pretending like you know it and then really have no idea what you're doing. Like yeah. those are things that very quickly you're going to get flushed out. So you know, get the experience that you can as early on as you possibly can and keep on learning, keep on asking questions, understanding what, you know, being, you know, shadowing other people and just absorbing all of it in. That's what I try to do all the time for myself. It's what I try to do for my team, even for our artists as well, so that they can learn and grow. Yeah. I think that comes back to the being humble part, right? Is that if you're humble, and you and you want to learn. You're in a learner's mindset all the time. Uh, what you want will come, and I think that's probably the most deceptive thing: is that we will tell ourselves and tell others, "This is what I want," but that's not really what you want. And I think that's the one of the harder mind games to get past. Right? Is to, uh, you know, we're all our own worst enemy, and. Uh, 
navigating that is probably more valuable than almost anything else I would say. Um, so yeah. I totally agree. So let's uh, shift gears a little bit here. And uh, speaking of uh, bands and things like that too, I'd like to talk about uh, your experiences of being a music video director. Sure. So uh, one of the projects uh, specifically I would like to talk about is uh, for Statues of Cats, which was one of the artists on A20 Records. Uh, they did a live performance video called Ground Down Memorabilia. Mm-hmm. So, And you were the director of that project. I was. So yeah, that project, that's one of the most fun projects I've ever done. It's, uh, it, I can't believe we actually were able to do it. it. It's, it was, we really pulled it off. Like, um, it was all in the pre-planning and it was all in lots of communication with myself, of course, Daphne, um, Derek, aforementioned Derek Johnson. He was my, uh, DP on the shoot helped with all the camera stuff, him and his team. Um, they were amazing. And, uh, basically, uh, that was a, a, a venue that we shot in. It was something that Daphne had arranged at the heart of art gallery. And it's a LGBTQ plus, um, safe zone basically where, uh, there were, uh, people from that community who could perform there, they would have social events there and Daphne knew the owners and they were willing enough to allow us to shoot in this venue, this kind of live show slash music video that we did. And um, the place is amazing. Like, I don't know if it still exists anymore uh, because this was several years ago, Um, but uh, people can look it up, uh, Downton Ground Memorabilia online statues of cats daphne green uh you can google all that you can probably find it but uh yeah like there are tvs all along the walls there's this incredible art there's like an upside down like nude like deer demon thing there's like all this amazing wall art like just it was just amazing colors everywhere it was just a beautiful place and um you know, working with Daphne and Statues of Cats, uh, they wanted to shoot uh, at this location, them just performing live. And so it was really ambitious. We shot an entire hour of content. I think it might've been an hour plus. Um, So it was a full show. I don't know how many songs they did. I think it was like eight songs maybe total. Um, And it was all back to back to back to back to back, no breaks. Um, And we had... I believe seven cameras at once shooting all with individual time codes. Uh, We had four camera operators on those uh, cameras and they were like, uh, I had them on specific paths that they could walk along. And uh, we, we had an audience there who are basically uh, people that we gathered uh, about 20, 30 individuals that we had just as the quote unquote crowd. And we had them like sectioned off with like tape and whatnot. And, uh, you know, we had some crowd control individuals in there too. And gosh, it was just this huge, crazy, uh, live event. And we, we got the show going, we shot on everything on those cameras and then we put it all together in post and we tried our best to seamlessly, create this uh, live performance experience um, 
that was it was very dynamic. I'm really proud of the project. It was it was a behemoth, and uh, we got through it. And I worked closely with Daphne Green about in the editing and the post production. Uh, we kind of like handed it off to one another because um, at the time we were living together, so it was easy to do. And uh, yeah, like that was just a, a really ambitious project. Um, it was a ton of fun, but a ton of stress. And, uh, you know, it was one of those projects where it was like, I didn't feel like we did anything wrong, except for, for a few things, because like no one really did anything like this. It was just so unique and bizarre what we were trying to go for. Um, so I felt like it was a success in its own right. And I, I learned so much from that shoot. What do you think was the uh, one of the biggest challenges that you faced some like an ambitious project like this um the biggest challenge was the planning and the coordination because it's very much like a uh you know film filmmaking is like a military operation you have to uh coordinate with all the individuals so i don't know how many bodies we had in this area 50 and you know uh, 15 of them are crew and uh, you know, we're trying, it's like wrangling, not just cats, but like cats and dogs simultaneously. It's like a, it's a really hard thing. And you don't have all the time in the world to do it because you're paying certain people to be there for so long. You can only use the venue because of certain, uh, like zoning things. Cause it's Los Angeles. There's all kinds of like hoops you have to jump through and somersault through and like just crazy stuff to do. And, you have to make sure all your ducks are in a row for the night of the shoot of the shoot because you don't get a second shot right and and that's probably the hardest part is like the collective of that whatever i just described is like that's where all the stress comes from that's where all the focus goes to um and you know thankfully things worked out as well as they could have and you know we have a really cool product an hours worth of awesome content that we were able to get from it. Um, so it was, it was ultimately, you know, a positive success. Now, one of the other uh, music videos that you did that was uh, any, any 20 year artist was a artist called uh, zero zero. Yes. Not, not turn zero, which is one of our current artists, but zero zero. Mm -hmm. And uh, can you talk a little bit more about the concept of that project and, uh, and yeah. uh, some so of the experiences there? So the Statues of Cats downground memorabilia was like a, a little more free form, I would say. It was um, it was it was kind of a wild concept that we we were ambitious and wanted to execute with. Well, with the zero zero, you know what to do music video. Um, it was much more linear. It was much more. This is a music video, um, and and this is what we're gonna we're gonna do with it. And so, uh. You know, I had this concept in my head <laughs> of, uh, of, of female Nerf gun assassins. That, that was what came to my head. I was probably stoned. And <laughs> you probably, but I, I love that. As soon as you said that, I was like, done. That yeah. sounds awesome. Yeah. So, you know, I had the idea of just like these uh, women who are like part of the band or just not, I don't, it didn't really matter who uh, would be basically killing like toxic masculinity like different versions of kind of like gross males right and um it was it it, it too was a really ambitious uh, project um 
I think we had to still shoot it in a night and, or in a night and a half, maybe, I think. Uh, two nights, I don't know exactly how long. It, it was a while. I know we had one wild, crazy long night. We had, we yeah, we had we had one long night because we uh, were able to work it out because I was I was helping with uh, production on this shoot. So I remember that we booked uh, the Clarendon Hotel. They allowed us to shoot there, but because it was an active hotel, we had to shoot it at these odd hours. So yeah. we were only allowed to shoot it in the evenings, and uh, they gave us uh, a couple of hotel rooms and then allowed us to shoot in the hotel rooms as well as on the premises and so but we only had one day to do that and then so we did uh one uh full night of that i think we started at like i don't know like eight o'clock and yeah. went to like six o'clock in the morning and, oh my god and then we did yeah i know i'm like thinking like i'm not gonna do that ever again um and then i knew there was a um some additional shots that was done in the parking lot yeah, uh, and that was on the second. Night. Well, the issue was uh, like everything. I, you know, I made a lot of mistakes, unfortunately. I think on the zero zero music video and, as a director, and um, I, I believe, I, I believe I did it uh, before the downground memorabilia. So that I was think first. I, yeah, that was yeah, before. yeah. So I think I learned a lot of things from the zero zero music video, and I carried those over into the more dynamic and wild uh statues of cats downground memorabilia can you, can you uh, talk more about those lessons do you mind talking about you, those things i don't mind at all um yeah. i think that the lesson is prep like prep prep and more prep like as director it's your responsibility to not have a plan b or a plan c you need to have a plan d e f g you gotta go all the way to z and um that is something that you can take for granted, or if you're arrogant like I was, you won't compensate for it, you know, or maybe you bit off more than you could chew. Um, and I think that, like always, if, if I had more time, it, it would have done better. I think if I had better planning on my part, it would have been better. Uh, you know, you just you just learn lessons and you would have done things differently. I feel like every uh, anybody who makes something any creator, they're going to be critical over their own work and they're going to look for the faults in it more than, than anybody else. And then try to learn hopefully from those mistakes and then carry them over. And then it's compounding over time is that every time you make a new thing, you learn something new. Um, and, and I, we were trying to do a lot. It was ambitious. Uh, and I, I think that the, my biggest problem with it was that I wasn't able to get certain shots like, um, I think one of the biggest things was uh, we had some technical problems where we lost some shots where like we shot them, but then they weren't saved in some manner. And, and that's like a neither here nor there kind of thing. It's kind of hard to manage. It's just, there are things that were totally avoidable. And I think since then, I haven't really had this, those same issues um, on my short film like Viscous. Um, didn't have those kinds of problems. Uh, I think that that's kind of uh, why we do projects, right? Like uh, pro bono, right? Is that you do them uh, to, in order to get the experience and to put your name on something that's yours uh, for better or worse. And uh, that's what the Zero Zero music video was. The other thing too, uh, some things that I've learned on film shoots is that uh, sometimes out of the chaos becomes opportunities. And one of my of favorite examples of that from the Zero Zero music video was the, the Clarendon Hotel 
uh, for those who have never been there before, is one of those hotels that has um, that is open. So all the, the everything is open within the the entire uh, building, including inside. So all the hotel doors or everything like that, they're all outside. And there's like a middle uh, area, you know, open area where there's the pool and things like that. So it's a very open space. And I do remember that we were shooting, and it was the middle of the night. And then all of a sudden, in the distance, we see a flash. Oh, rumbling. yeah. And we're like, oh, no. Storm's <laughs> coming in. And we're literally in the middle of shooting. So I remember we had to rush a lot of shots in because we see we can see in the distance the storm in the middle of the night the storm coming and what actually was great about it is that we you took advantage of that and actually took a shot of lightning things like that we got production yeah. value <laughs> out of that because we got this like booty sky and like the lightning coming across with you know ninja female ninja nerf assassins and things yeah. like that too so yeah, it ended up working well i think when you're on a film set and you're the director, you have to look at everything. And, it, you know, the prep is, I think, unbelievably important, but being in the moment can maybe just be as important because then you can find um, the, that shot, you can find that moment that maybe if you were just too much of a one track mind, you would not have seen and so there's a little bit of like lucidity necessary as well where you have to kind of um uh keep your head on a swivel look for those opportunities and uh if if you have the time you know it's like oh how long does it take to do the shot okay that's two minutes okay that's fine we can do that that kind of decision making is is what you have to be able to do so yeah and just having the open mind for it as well so you mentioned before about uh your doing short films and how you learned from these experiences from the music videos into your short films. But I'm also curious in general, what do you, would you say is some of the biggest differences between shooting a music video, whether it's a live performance or a fully scripted music video in comparison to filming a short film? So the uh, short films are a lot more personal I feel like, and music videos and no matter who it's for, or what it's about are much more commercial. So like if you're making a movie and you're, you're not trying really to say that much, then even if you have really good technical abilities and your performances are great and your decision-making as a director are pretty good, it's not going to be uh, excellent. It's going to always just be fine or okay, or even pretty good. But um, everybody strives for excellence or at least trying to say something. I think that's really important, especially as I've gotten older, trying to say something um, and, and being honest with what that might be. And I think all those mind gymnastics come when you are thinking about um, a short film, because short films, um, similar to feature films, uh, that you have a beginning, middle, and an end. You have to be succinct with the information that you provide to the audience and characterizations and development and giving them a nice, satisfying conclusion, all that stuff. Um, whereas with a music video or you know, live or not or whatever, it's like you're going for, you're supporting the music, ideally. And you want to elevate the music to a place that maybe it wasn't it wasn't there to begin with, or maybe give a different take on it. 
like uh, some of my favorite music videos are um, Sabotage by the Beastie Boys. Um, and uh, I Want to Fall in Love um, by, uh, I forgot the, the guy's name, but uh, beautifully shot music video of people kissing on the beach, black and white photography, that kind of thing. And the song is fine, but when you watch it with that music video, you're like, wow, this is really something. Uh, and I think that's the goal then what you're trying to do for a music video. You're not really getting caught up in like the character development or like, what am I trying to say or whatever? Cause it's, what does the artist want to say? It's their music. And that is the strong, it should be the strongest driving force behind the music video should be the music. Um, you are simply there as a scaffolding in order to raise them up. Um, so I think that would be the primary difference um, with my short films and stuff. Like it's, it's like, this is a film by Christopher Leon Price. I better make sure that I, it's good and it's saying something and it's true to what I want in my vision. Like I, I have, you have to really look in the mirror when you're making a short film. And uh, it's, it's, it's not so eviscerating when you do it um, for a music video. So one of the things that I want to touch on is something that we talked about very early in the beginning of this episode, which is that you are uh, the Obi-Wan to my podcasting. <laughs> Obi-Wan, huh? That's good. Yeah. And yeah, we're going to go there because of Star Wars. Yes. But yeah. so talk, talk to me more about how you got into uh, podcasting. Yeah. So I'm like one of those, uh, you know, people talk about being jacks of all trades and masters of none. I am the true jack of all trades, master of none. Uh, I'm getting to the master part in some of them, but not quite there. Because uh, I don't know, I, I have like a weird ADD mentality for uh, my hobbies. I have lots and lots and lots of hobbies, things I'm really interested in. And podcasting, you know, it's arguable that podcasting is the thing I do most proficiently, most more off, most often. And I have spent the most time doing even compared to all the filmmaking stuff. You know, I went to school for film and I may have done more for podcasting. Um, and I got into it um, before it was podcasting. I was into it at the beginning. Damn it. Uh, I remember listening growing up. Uh, I used to work at a pool and uh, I was like the quote unquote lifeguard, not really more of the pool boy who was kind of there if anybody started to drown or whatever. And uh, I would listen to talk radio. I would listen to AM talk radio in Arizona. And uh, I just always liked conversations. I've always loved morning radio and like the morning zoo with these, all these people joking about stuff and, you know, people calling in. And I always thought that was just so fun. And um, then I found out about podcasting. I think it was through Adam Carolla he had one of the first really, really big podcasts when it was on an iPod because they didn't have it on iPhones. Uh, that's why it's called podcasting. Do your research, everybody. And, uh, you know, after I found out it was possible to record yourself and post it on the internet through an RSS feed, uh, I was like, wow, it's amazing. And I started doing it. And so I started basically my, I think, sophomore year of college. So I think that would put me around 2006-ish, around 2006. I um, started taking my laptop around and I created a podcast called The Geek Jock Podcast. And I had always felt up until that point in my life 
that, um, you know, I was into sports, I played football, I did wrestling, I was into boxing and all that other stuff. And, uh, but I was also this giant nerd played magic, the gathering, I, you know, huge video game nerd, went to video game tournaments and stuff, um, way into film, comics, star Wars, all that. So I was like, well, I'm a geek jock. Okay. Well, I'll make a, the geek jock podcast. And so I would run around ASU with my laptop. I would find friends of friends, people who are in classes. Um, and it's pretty amazing who I was able to talk to. Um, and I still have all these episodes. It's hilarious. They're so cringy. Um, and, you know, I would just sit down and talk to them for like 30 minutes, 30, 40 minutes. And um, I think I made about 45 episodes of it over like a year-ish. And uh, I think I did it up until moving to Los Angeles. And uh, that was my entry point into it. I wasn't really making it for any particular reason. I just liked it. I thought it was cool. Um, and I have not stopped since. Yeah. I mean, since then, you not only besides Geek Jock, you've been for yourself. And we'll get into some of the podcasting that you're doing that's not even your own. Um, but you've done, you've created, launched a number of different podcasts on all different types of concepts and subjects over the years. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, I did the Mega Men podcast where a friend and I uh, would just basically drink and talk shit to each other. And we made like 150 of those episodes. We made a ton of those every uh, two weeks or so. Uh, then I also made uh, the Brain Love podcast, which was like one of my my first real attempt at having interview like conversational um, podcasting, everything else is just kind of me. It was kind of the spiritual successor to the geek jock was the brain love podcast. And that was more philosophical. I have a really philosophical side to who I am. And, uh, I like talking about stuff and analyzing and that show allowed me to do that. I mean, about 30 mm, ish episodes of that show. Um, and then I launched a podcast and I still do this podcast today. Um, that is called the Hollywood hangover. And Hollywood Hangover is with uh, myself and good buddy Joe Russo, who's a writer, producer, and all-around cinephile Joe Russo. Uh, he uh, is a great guy. He's out here making films, directing, doing a lot of great things, too. Um, we try to, uh, you know, at least once a month, probably twice a month, do a podcast where we talk about the film industry and what's going on. Our latest one is about the Snyder Cut and its place in cinema right now. Um, but we talk about all kinds of stuff too. And I also do work just to wrap things up uh, as far as my current projects. Uh, I do post-production for the show Postmortem with Mick Garris. And uh, that is an interview-based show where um, Mick Garris, who is the Zelig of horror, he's everywhere and has been around forever. Um, he's like a, uh, not just a mini legend. I think he's a legend of, of horror at this point. People love him. Can't find a bad thing about the guy. He's awesome. And uh, yeah, I mean, that show has allowed me to interview, uh, not myself, but to be in on interviews and interface with uh the, some of the most iconic filmmakers and actors and actresses uh, alive. So like Guillermo del Toro, Stephen King, Whoopi Goldberg, uh, Ron Perlman, 
uh clive barker uh like the it's a we've talked to a ton of like heavy hitting really iconic individuals who have like you know i've been it's, i've been so fortunate to uh listen to them speak and hear uh their wisdom and to just be around all of that uh so it's it's been really cool i, I would have to say that like the podcast journey i'm on and and, can, and will continue to be on is is very much merging with my filmmaking journey which is um both I have now kind of put in the time and, and have the experience to where I can actually start um, making a life of it and not just trying to make a life of it, but actually do it. And, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm really happy to, to be where I am. You know, it's amazing because I think it comes down to the fact that, you know, you like to be a creator in general and, that's one of the also reasons why I started the eighty twenty shows. I wanted to do something to you know, I wanted to create something. And you know, this is actually a question I was going to ask you this question, but I think I'm going to actually answer it and go back and forth with you on this sure. one. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Is that, you know, I'm I'm sure a lot of people are listening right now and stuff like that too, and always asking themselves that question of, well, how do I get started? Right? That's always like a very common question, is like how how to get started. And the most cliche answer, but is, and I'll go into more into depth about this, is to just start. But I'll explain more about what that means, at least from my opinion. And I want your uh, perspective on both filmmaking as well as a podcaster as well. Mm -hmm. And I think I've told this story before to everyone who's listening, but I don't care. I'm going to tell you again is that I really thought I had, I did not like my voice. So, first of all, for all of you out there that say, I hate the sound of my voice. Well, I'm doing it, and I felt the exact same way. I'm an introvert. I do not generally like the getting the spotlight. So if you have those same type of feelings, I'm doing this right now. So it took me time to get over that, but I also practiced. For almost six months to a year, and Chris, I know you can vouch for this, I practiced. I practice with you. This is actually technically our second interview. I did one before uh, before, and we decided to do another one. So I practice on you. I practice on family members, I, uh, other friends as well. I practiced for about six months to a year without releasing a single episode so that I can hone in on my skills as a host, understand, be more comfortable with the logistics and the technology of what how I get used to everything. So, And then I started releasing the episodes when I felt the timing was right. Now... That's how I went about it, but the point was I, I started. I just tried, and I saw what worked for me. And something that I always currently live by is that what is the worst-case scenario, right? Is that do you know what happens if nobody likes it or has a no audience? Will I still feel like I got something out of this? And I think that's the most important thing, at least going into it, is that do you feel like it's giving you some sort of value, whether it's enjoyment, whether it's to hone in on a specific skill set or some other benefit? And I came into this knowing, yes, that this is something that I really feel like is valuable to me. And I've been very hap happy with the results so far of the podcast, but it was never about, originally at least, about how to build the audience out. It's, first of all, do I feel like I'm going to get something out of this and enjoy the experience? And then I learned 
I learned from from you, Chris. I learned from other people who I know who've done podcasting before. I would talk to others and just see how I can be better at it and then put it out there and just see if anybody else enjoyed it or if I hate my voice as much as other people do. And fortunately, I was proven wrong. But that's how you get started is that you just you learn, you learn from people who you've already know. And that's the most like for me, that was the easiest thing is I just talked to people that already do it, that already know who do it. And just learning from them and then trying things out on my own and learning the hard way, which I think is sometimes the best way. But uh, anyway, I rambled enough. I want to hear your your opinion about uh, the concept of getting started. Uh, well, it's it goes back to the mental gymnastics thing and admitting to yourself and being honest with yourself about what you really want to do. Um, it's not that different than somebody who wants to play the guitar right? It's like you pick up a guitar, you have no idea what you're doing. Uh, you really just, it's like, why do you want to play the guitar? It's like, that's a really weird philosophical question that you kind of have to answer. And, and there's nothing you or I could say that would give anybody listening that answer. But th whatever it is, you have to answer that. Is like, why play the guitar? Why do a podcast? Why want, would you want to be a filmmaker? Um, and uh, where do you start? And I, I think getting started, um, which is the base question here, is something I learned from you, which is uh, do research. That's probably the best place to start is to educate yourself about what you're getting yourself involved in. Um, so the guitar thing, that's looking up tabs, that's looking up uh, uh, chord progressions and, you know, maybe exercises of how to use the guitar, blah, blah, blah. Um, and you can extrapolate with that with everything and anything is that you uh, educate yourself about whatever the thing is that you want to do. And maybe then you can make decisions because maybe you start learning about it and it's not really what you expected. And, you know, you realize maybe it's going to take too long to do the thing and you'd rather do something else or whatever. Like, and there's nothing wrong with that either. Like, I think that's probably one of the smartest thing a, a person can do is to research, educate themselves, find out it's not their bag and then find something else. I think that that's really, really smart and there's no shame in that. And, but that is the key to getting started because hopefully through that research, you get excited and you, and it motivates you to, to learn more. And then you maybe start branching out and you, you try to find people who've, who've done what you want to do and you start talking to them and then, uh, or people who know them at least. And then that's kind of the journey is that, like it's really just putting one foot in front of the other. And I think as much as you can disintegrating your expectations, that is uh, really, really hard to do um, because you, it's like, you want to, you want to get the reward. You want to get the thing, you know, the carrot on the stick or whatever to, to make you keep moving and keep and keep doing it. And that again, goes back to the philosophical aspect of all of this, which is why are you doing it in the first place? And uh, if you follow those steps, then you will get to what you were saying before, where just by doing it, it's enjoyable, or just by doing it, you're getting all these other skills that are not related to the goal, but may help you with other goals. And like, there is a leap of faith in all of that. Like you don't know if you're wasting your time, that's, that's a shitty uh, place to be. And that will, that's something that's going to challenge you in the face when you do anything, when you start 
on the journey, whether it's podcasting or music or anything like that, you're, you're, you're basically taking a leap of faith every single time and you have to be okay with that, but that is life. And uh, again, that's why it's so important to know why you're doing it, because then you won't waste your time as often. You're definitely going to waste your time still every once in a while, but not as often if you're able to um, be honest with yourself and authentic with why you're doing what you want to do. Absolutely. I uh, probably couldn't say that better myself. You couldn't, Mike. You really couldn't. (laughs) (laughs) Where's that humbleness coming in? (laughs) Oh, I don't know. I'm the most humble guy in the world. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much, Chris, for being on the podcast. I really do appreciate it. Thank you so much. Yeah, man. It's it's always a pleasure, Mike. And uh, I, I know we'll do it again in the future at some point uh, on a different subject. Uh, thanks for facilitating it. And uh, can't wait until we do it next time. Thanks, Chris. Thank you so much for listening to The 8020 Show. If you haven't already, please subscribe or follow. If you enjoyed the episode or this podcast overall, please leave us a review or comment on our socials, which you can find us at 8020records on pretty much all platforms. You can also check us out on our website at www.8020records.com. And as always, be happy, be healthy, and be productive.